The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon, everybody. I am Becky Davidson. I chair the Pedestrian Environment Access Committee for ACB, and my colleague, who is the chairman of the Transportation Committee for ACB, and I are pleased to welcome you to Two Mobility and Beyond. And we are really excited to have as our presenter, Billy Louise Beasy Benson, joining us from Fairbanks, Alaska. She might get the prize for the longest distance, even though she is actually Zooming. We're thrilled to have her. She's a certified orientation and mobility specialist and a PhD. She has been working with people who are blind or visually impaired, teaching to travel independently for over 40 years. And she has done a ton of research into all sorts of intersection designs, street crossings, all kinds of planning. And she has quite a long resume and I really am thrilled to have her here. She's going to speak to us for probably an hour and then we'll have Q&A from both Zoom and the room. And so hold your questions and um, I'm sure we'll get as many of them answered as we can. So Beezy, welcome, and I'm going to turn it over to you. Good morning or good afternoon, wherever you are. It's 1132 here in the little village of Esther, Alaska, near Fairbanks in the interior, where I have preparations underway for a village 4th of July parade right outside my window, which is closed. But you may hear occasional horns or hooting and hollering. It's a small parade. It won't go long or won't take long to pass by here. But uh, you may hear some some noisy and joyful interruptions here. Um, But I'm pleased to join you today. I always really appreciate the opportunity to share things that I know with people who are blind or have low vision who know underfoot on the street every day more about traveling than I do. As mentioned, I've been an orientation and mobility specialist for more than 40 years, and the environment has really changed in that time. As you all are aware, who've been traveling independently for a long time. So if travel keeps getting harder for you, well, it may not be you. It may be the environment that's changing. And so I was asked to talk about some of the challenges of this changing environment. So first, I'd like to talk about crosswalks that are hard to find. Crosswalks at roundabouts, for instance, or channelized turn lanes where there's a very rounded corner and you have to actually go out, cross a, a turn lane and get go out to an island from which you actually cross the street. Mid-block crossings, what are called generically innovative intersections. I will have just a, a brief comment about that. It can sound really scary, but it's only sort of so, so scary. So I'll have some techniques that you can use that may work for you. And uh, later on in my talk, I'll be talking about some new tools that engineers have to make all this easier. At the end of this, you will know more than the engineers do. So in order to get these tools used, you're going to need to advocate. But more about that later. So roundabouts. I don't know how many of you have actually experienced travel at a roundabout. It can be very scary. It can be something that you avoid. But it it doesn't have to be, especially if it's a single lane roundabout. One of the things about roundabouts is that you're always crossing traffic going in only one direction at a time before you come to an island or something. So you only have to listen on one side. You don't have to listen for two-way traffic. At a roundabout, it's always coming from just one side. So you need to figure out what side it's coming from, and that's where you have to pay attention. You don't have to pay any attention to the other side. It's only going to come at you from one side. Now, if it's a single lane roundabout, just one lane of cars where you're crossing, which is is quite common, but not all of them for sure, it can be fairly easy and fairly safe to cross. It depends on how much traffic there is and whether the roundabout is designed so that because of the geometry of the roundabout, vehicles can't go very fast. If vehicles are going slower, they're more likely to see you, to yield for you. And there's some 
things that are sometimes being done to encourage yielding too, like making the whole crosswalk raised. That makes drivers more likely to yield. There's nothing certain about it. There's no red signal at a single lane roundabout. Normally not a signal at all, unless it's very busy, very fast moving. But you usually will be able to hear cars if there's a gap or if they're yielding for you to cross. But in terms of finding the crosswalk, that can be a big deal because if a a roundabout is replacing an intersection that you've been used to crossing, you no longer just go straight ahead to the corner and assume that you can cross straight ahead and you'll get to the other side. Say the street is on your left, you've got to veer around a really gradually turning corner to the right to where you'll find the crosswalk. Now, how are you going to know where that crosswalk is? Well, I'm going to give you sort of an all-purpose way to, to try to find that, which generally will work, although it can be scary to implement. And so you have to be careful, which is to simply trail the outside guidelines. You might have grass there. You might have some kind of barrier, but you might just have the curb. Now, when the Public Rights of Way Access guidelines ever get published, they say, no, you can't do that. You've got to have something there and guidelines for constructing roundabouts are now telling people, yeah, you've got to have something there. You can't just have straight to the drop off, but you will sometimes. And what you need to do to find the proper place to cross is to trail the outside guideline. Whether you've got a grass strip, you've got a fence, you've got the drop off right there, trail that until you come to a curb ramp and a detectable warning. Now, If that crosswalk has been raised to the level of the sidewalk, you should still have the detectable warning. So remember, you're looking for a curb ramp or a detectable warning or both. And that will be in the crosswalk. So that will take care of sort of where you cross from. And the same thing works for channelized turn lanes. Basically, they're going to be on around a corner a little bit more than you would expect. But if you're trailing that outside guideline, looking for a curb ramp, and or a detectable warning, that should be where the crossing is. That should work for you. But I urge you to be careful in employing that technique, especially if the curb is right there. I told you there are a bunch of innovative intersections. Very briefly, I'm going to talk about these almost more for fun in a way that this is not stuff that you need to remember, but there are a whole bunch of very unusual intersections that are now being constructed with the goal of minimizing conflicts between vehicles and bikes and pedestrians. And the research on them is that accident rates really do go down, especially for vehicles. There's not much research yet on pedestrians or bicycles, but the way they're designed, they just don't bring you together in a way Well, you can't have a head-on collision. Nobody can have a head-on collision with anybody else. So there are displaced left-turn intersections. There are left-displaced left-turn interchanges. There are restricted crossing U-turn intersections. There are median U-turn intersections. There are quadrant roadway intersections. There are double crossover diamond interchanges. Just a host of crazy convoluted figure eight laid on figure eight sort of intersections. But the thing that you really need to know as a traveler with impaired vision is that your rules for crossing them are really and, and, and being safe are really the same as they are for a roundabout. So in dealing with finding them, and I haven't dealt with the other aspects of safety and crossing, but in terms of finding where to cross, trail the outside shoreline, look for detectable warning, look for curb ramp, and that should be a crossing. But at these new, very complicated, innovative intersections, you certainly need to have somebody familiarize you with that intersection. So you know the series of crossings you need to make. To cross the intersection, you may make six or eight different crossings. Really crazy. But each one you should be able to find where to cross by looking for where the detectable warning is and, and, the, and the, the curb ramp. But 
you may feel like you're you're traveling in a zigzag line just to get across the street. So you need somebody rather to familiarize you with that crossing if it's one you're going to make all the time so that you know exactly the series of things that you, you need to go, whether the next crosswalk is going to be a little to the left, a little to the right, how many crosswalks there are, and so on. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about safety later on, but I'll, I'll at this point just say the Access Board is requiring and Good Roundabout Design is now recognizing that if you have two or more lanes that you're crossing, there needs to be some kind of traffic control there because of the multiple threat reality when you have multi-lanes. A car in the lane closest to you may yield for you. You may hear him nicely. You may begin to cross an approaching car in the second lane out. Doesn't know why that car stopped, but he is, and he doesn't see you, and you don't hear him. And so you're sitting duck for a crash in that situation. And so that's why it's being recognized. No, this isn't okay. It really isn't okay for any pedestrian. And it certainly isn't for visually impaired pedestrians. So they don't say exactly what kind of traffic control it is. It doesn't have to be a regular yellow-green traffic light. It could be something like what's called a pedestrian hybrid beacon, which from your point of view isn't much different than a regular traffic light. Traffic has to start when it goes solid red and a walk sign goes on during which you're supposed to start your crossing and then it goes to a clearance in which there there's time for you to complete the crossing. The difference is that once it goes to that clearance time, it's okay for those stopped cars. Once you've gotten past them and, and the crosswalk is clear, it's okay for them to go ahead, even though the light hasn't changed to be green for them yet. So this is a situation in which you really have no clear indication as to when it's You know, that light comes on for you to cross unless there's an accessible pedestrian signal, an APS. And so if there is a roundabout, an innovative intersection that's just popped up or you know it's being planned, make sure there are APS at all the crossings that you have to make. Now, there are other things that they can do besides that pedestrian hybrid beacon, which is a, a red ball signal that says vehicles have to come to a stop. Then they can can go again when when the crosswalk is clear. They don't have to wait for a green signal. But sort of functionally, it's about the same for you. But you don't know when to to start if you don't have an APS. So this is a real situation that you need to advocate for an accessible pedestrian signal at a crossing that has a pedestrian hybrid beacon or a red ball signal for that matter, regular traffic light. There are other things that they can do. There's one that's called a rapid rectangular flashing beacon. And this is a yellow beacon, which flashes fast back and forth across the street. It's quite eye-catching and does increase yielding a great deal. But it's not a red signal for which vehicles have to stop. But if you know when it's coming on, then you know it at least when they have this, this very conspicuous warning, something's happening here. There's a crosswalk. I need to, need to, to yield or whoever's in the crosswalk. That's a situation in in which there's not a regular APS that comes on with a a rapid tone or a speech message that says uh, walk sign is on to cross whatever it is. It should be a push button to actuate it. And when the yellow lights come on, the beacon comes on, it should say two times, yellow lights are flashing yellow lights are flashing. So you get just the same information that the sighted pedestrian does. That's all it tells you. The yellow lights are flashing. So the, your your chances of traffic yielding for you are pretty good. So that's not as good maybe as, um, as a, a signal um, that has a red indication, but it, it really does in, in, uh, increase the likelihood of vehicles yielding for you. There are some beacons that are just A steady yellow light that turns on, that's not nearly as effective as this rectangular rapid flashing beacon. You might hear that it's going to have a beacon. Well, what kind? What kind, you ask? If it's a pedestrian hybrid beacon, or just ask. If it's a pedestrian hybrid beacon, it's got a red signal. Okay, that means I should have a regular accessible pedestrian signal to let me know when it's my turn to cross, right? Well, it's a rapid rectangular flashing beacon. That's yellow, right? 
I need a push button to actuate it myself. It needs to have a locator tone so I can find that push button. And it needs to tell me that yellow lights are flashing. So I have the same information the sighted pedestrian does. Then I can make my own decision about whether there's a yield and it's safe for me to cross now. So another challenge that is getting (laughs) more and more is finding bus stops because as bicycle lanes become more common and what are called separated bicycle lanes become more common, sometimes you have to cross a bicycle lane to get out to an island to get to the bus stop. And where you cross to get to that bus stop may require the same kind of strategy for finding it as finding a crossing for a roundabout or channelized turn lane. Trail the outside guideline, whatever it is, look for detectable warning, look for a curb ramp. It may or may not have a curb ramp. Often it will have a raised crosswalk, so crosswalks at the same level as the sidewalk, but it should have a detectable warning. It should have bumps at both ends so that you can find it, know where it is. That's crosswalk that is planned for you to cross. And in most cases in that situation, the bikes are going to be coming along at the street level and then they ramp up to a kind of a wide crossing, which which is your crosswalk, and then ramp down again. And that makes them more likely to yield. Now, there's some wonderful advocacy going on by ACB members in Montgomery County, Maryland, working on getting policies for accessing bus stops that are out on an island, so-called floating bus stops. But finding them, you use the same technique that you do for finding a crosswalk at a roundabout or channelized turn lane or one of these innovative intersections. There is an environmental modification for finding crosswalks, and it works for these floating bus stops. And that is raised flat-top parallel bars. It's called a tactile direction indicator. And it's raised about a quarter of an inch, just like like the the domes. The bars are about an inch wide, and there's about two inches between the bars. You should be able to tell the difference between the bars and the domes. The typical use for these is to follow them to someplace that you're going, an intermediate or final destination. And the bars will be parallel to the direction you're going. Usually the strip is about 12 inches wide. It might go on for a long way. And normally, it's okay to travel on either side of it so you can cross over it. It's not a warning. It should never indicate a warning. But there's a lot of misuse of this raised bar tactile direction indicator. There are are pedestrians and bikes at sidewalk level. Now, that's a relatively new thing, but it is becoming very common that planners and engineers are putting bicycles up at the sidewalk level there is pretty good recognition that they need to put something between pedestrians and bikes at the same level so that pedestrians who can't see are able to know the limit of the pedestrian way and not cross into the path of bikes, which is, from a cyclist's point of view, that path for bikes, bikes is a path for bikes. They're not supposed to be pedestrians in it unless there's a crosswalk. And so they're not expecting anybody to be there. It's a very dangerous situation if you get into a bike lane and don't realize you're there. And so there is recognition that some kind of a delineator is needed. And there wasn't any research or anything to to tell people what to put until a couple of years ago. And uh, some research that I conducted that San Francisco sponsored because they were planning to put bikes on the same level, sidewalk level, uh, with pedestrians. And they knew that they had to find something that was really very readily detectable by blind people and very recognizable as having a a definite meaning that says, don't cross me, don't cross me. There are bikes on the other side. This is not a place to cross the street. You'll be in danger if you cross the other side. You need to be able to recognize instantaneously what it is and that there's danger on the other side. So just sort of back back to summarize on, on the the parallel bars, the tactile direction indicator, they may go a long ways and be a path to follow, which gets you part way or all the way to, to some place that you want to go. It should be at least 12 inches wide. It should be okay to cross them. Maybe there's not enough room to walk on one side and you soon realize, oh, no, I'd better cross back to the other side, even though I really would rather have them on my right than on my left to go back across because there's more space. And that they, they never indicate a place to cross. Basically, they're a a keep going this way, if that's the way you want to go. They should never indicate a warning. 
but sometimes they're used between pedestrians and bicycles. And so if you suspect that there's a bike lane, ask somebody. There's some other ways that there are occasionally, only occasionally, because it's new and there hasn't been enough advocacy to get them used. Sometimes they're used to indicate the location of a bus stop or a mid-bot crosswalk or crosswalk that's just hard to find, like at a roundabout. When they're used this way, they go all the way across the sidewalk. So if you're walking down the sidewalk, you should just come to them and find them. There should be about 24 inches wide, not going on and on, but just a strip that crosses the sidewalk. And you can follow that strip toward the curb line and where it should end beside or behind one end of truncated domes. If there's a push button, the bar should be on the same side of the domes as the push button. An important thing to know is that the bars should be parallel with the direction of travel if you're continuing on the sidewalk. This is for two reasons. One, if you're traveling in a wheelchair or any wheeled mobility aid, crossing them when you're just continuing on that sidewalk is kind of a non-event. If they're turned the other way, so they're going perpendicular across the crosswalk, you come up across them with a wheelchair and you're going, Drrr. so you can imagine there's going to be some opposition amongst mobility impaired, the mobility impaired community to using these, just like there was opposition, a lot of opposition to using truncated domes at curb ramps. There will be some opposition. So it behooves us to be recommending something that minimizes the disruption to travel of people that use wheeled mobility aids. And it really is minimal if those bars are going in the direction of travel if you're continuing on the sidewalk. Well, the exact direction should make those bars perpendicular to the direction of crossing on the crosswalk. Exactly perpendicular. And the reason for that is that it is an excellent cue to align with. Sometimes you have places where there are really no alignment cues, like at a roundabout. Nothing's going parallel with you. There's no traffic. And the curb ramp may or may not slope in the direction that you need to travel on the crosswalk. And so it is a really good idea not only to have the raised bars so you can find the crosswalk without traveling along the outside guideline, which may be risky for you. You can find it and you can align with that surface. One surface does two things. It tells you where and it tells you your direction. Now, if you're advocating for this, engineers and planners may be a little puzzled if you say, you know, those bars should be parallel with the direction of travel if for somebody continuing on the sidewalk. Because maybe they have seen pictures or traveled internationally where very often that cue is used with the bars turned the other way. So they, they, the bars are perpendicular to the direction of travel if you continue. So they're going to go for somebody in a wheelchair. No, you want, want to minimize the, the disruption for people with wheeled mobility aids. And when they're turned that way, you can square off with them. Now, intuitively, you might think that bars are going the same direction you want, want to travel are going to give you a more accurate direction than bars that are going crosswise under your feet. But that's not true. There's considerable research that says that people who are trying to establish a line of travel, if they have bars going, you know, the long ways under their feet, are not able to align very accurately. If the bars are going crosswise under both feet, you can square off with them, just like you might square off with the edge of a curb and, and get quite accurate alignment. So as I say, this is not something that is used very much yet. The research is recent. It's going to take a lot of advocacy to get it used, just like it took a lot of advocacy by ACB and others to get domes at the bottom of curb ramps. Uh, but it, it is an excellent thing, both for finding crosswalks and for aligning to cross. Well, sometimes you've got corners where aligning is hard. Not only these hard-to-find crosswalks that might be mid-block or, or on uh, at a roundabout or something like that, Sometimes they're corners where there's no reliable parallel traffic. 
Maybe there just isn't isn't much traffic, so it's intermittent. You never know whether there'll be a car or not. Maybe the the traffic, in fact, is not parallel to the direction of the crosswalk. Maybe it's a skewed cross crossing, and the traffic's going in a different direction than you want to go. So head, following the traffic is not going to get you accurately to the other side. Maybe the curb ramp is is what's sometimes referred to as an apex curb ramp. That is, it's right in the middle of, of the bend of the of the curb ramp. And if you go in the direction of that curb ramp, it's going to dump you right into the middle of the intersection. Well, that's sure not where you want to be. And so it's it's rather important to try to figure out if you're coming to a new crossing, is that crossing really somewhat in line, at least with the street I want to cross? Or is it maybe an apex ramp that's going to take me right into the middle of the intersection? Well, if you have a tactile direction indicator, you could have it so that it would tell you which way to align and, and give you an alignment cue for each of the crosswalks at a corner. If it's not at a corner, those raised bars should go all the way across the sidewalk. But at corners, turns out that you know, most blind people, most of the time, are going to find the crossing, even if it's kind of wonky maybe a little ways from the corner, even if it's an apex curb ramp, they're going to find where there's a crosswalk. The crosswalk will come to that apex, but it's not, you don't want to head in the direction of that ramp. You need to, to head to one side or, or the other. A technique that um, is, is sometimes taught by ONMers or sometimes sort of discovered and used by, by blind travelers is that you go to the side of the curb ramp that is farthest from the intersection that you want to stay away from and you find the curb line just beside the curb ramp and you start crossing from where you've got the curb and can square off from the curb. Now that curb line is still not necessarily going to be parallel and take you in the direction of the crosswalk. It's good to confirm that with somebody if you can and you know you'll get the most helpful information from people, if you stick out your arm and you think this is the direction that I should go, and with the other arm say, or is it further over to the right or the left, so that they have a good way to sort of frame a reference to talk to you about where it is if, it, if your first pointing isn't, isn't a good one to follow. So it's, it's really good to get help at a corner that's a little confusing. But if you can advocate and get a tactile direction indicator installed, that will give you accurate alignment information. But at a corner, it's confusing if they go all the way across the crosswalk or all the way across the sidewalk, because if it's an apex ramp, they'll end up crossing each other. Or if it's a wide sidewalk, they'll end up just sort of indefinitely going down the sidewalk. It'll be very confusing. And since generally people can find where to cross from, although it may take a little looking, but generally people find that all right. We don't use recommend that that tactile direction indicator be used all the way across the sidewalk. Just use a two-by-two-foot square near the end of the detectable warning so that you've got an alignment cue. You can find the detectable warning. Then you can find the alignment cue if it exists by looking to the end of that detectable warning in the direction that you want to cross. If you know it's an apex ramp, you know you want to cross the street that, say, you're, you're you're approaching an apex corner. The street is on your right. You come to that ramp. You know that the direction of the crosswalk is going to be further to the right to cross that parallel street. And so you look sort of away from the intersection on the side that, that you want to cross to. So what do, you, what do you do if there's no parallel traffic and you're trying to align and, and to keep your heading accurately as you go across the crosswalk? What do you do if there's no parallel traffic? There none of these raised bars for you to square off on. You get the best alignment you can get. And Taney's idling perpendicular traffic may be a good cue. Often that stop bar will be parallel with the crosswalk. It'll be a little further from the intersection than the crosswalk, but it often is in the same direction as you should cross on that crosswalk. But it's a good idea to confirm with somebody that that, in fact, is the case before you decide I'm going to use perpendicular traffic and, and cross just right in front of them and use that as my guidance cue. Because maybe, in fact, that stop line that determines where you're idling perpendicular traffic is, is not parallel with the crosswalk. So it's good to ask somebody. 
is it, is it parallel? Can I use that as a cue? Well, as I mentioned before, using the straight curb on the side of a curb ramp that's farthest from the interse- center of the intersection. It may be perpendicular with a street to be crossed. And if it is, you're going to line with the curb, square off of the curb under both feet and get an accurate start that way. But you want to confirm that that curb ramp is actually perpendicular to the direction that you want to cross, or it can still take you out into the middle of the intersection. It's good to be on the side of the curb ramp that's farthest from the intersection, because if you veer a little bit toward the intersection, you've you've got a little leeway there, the width of the crosswalk itself, to keep you out of of the intersection. If none of those things work for you, have somebody help you find some physical cue at that crossing that can work to give you a good heading. It's always more accurate to square off with something that's going perpendicular to the direction you want to travel than to align with something parallel to the direction you want to go. So if you can, find something that is perpendicular to the direction you want to go. It might be a traffic signal box, control box that that has a flat side that is just uh, perpendicular to the direction crossing. Good. You might have to use the edge of, of grass if there's, there's grass between the sidewalk and, and the curb line that, that comes to an end where you go out to the street crossing. But that edge of grass may, may be parallel to the direction you want to travel. But that's not going to be a secure cue as finding something that's perpendicular to the direction you want to go. It's just not psychophysically possible for people to align as accurately with something that's parallel as something that's perpendicular. So you always want to find a perpendicular cue if there is one. If there isn't, you use what you got to the best of your ability. There's a new thing, not used much yet, that can give you a very good audible indication once you start your street crossing. And that's called an audible APS beacon or just an APS beacon or a beaconing APS. A beacon is usually thought of as a light, but it's something out in front of the that you can head for. It's something to head for. In this case, it's a sound that you can head for. And it's an adaptation on a regular accessible pedestrian signal. As I say, not used very much because people are are not familiar with it, but it really works to help you go straight across the street, even if your alignment isn't quite straight. And the way it works is this. It's in association with an APS. So there's always a push button. You push the push button and you wait for the walk to come on. Now, the walk's going to be that rapid tone or sometimes a speech indicator. And then it's followed by what engineers would call the clearance interval tone, which is going back to the locator tone. Sometimes there's a countdown. There's not supposed to be a countdown. There's a good reason for that. I know many of you probably think the countdown, sighted people have a countdown. We ought to have a countdown. Well, there's not been research that directly addresses that. I hope there will be before long. I hope that I'll be able to participate in that. But um, I'll back up just a minute and say whatever comes on during that clearance time will, if you have the beaconing APS, it will come from a loudspeaker that is at the other end of the crosswalk. It'll still be going on quietly from the APS that you just left on the curb but it'll come loudly from where you're headed. And so if you have a beaconing APS, you just go for that sound and you know you're going to go straight across that street. It really, really works. And blind people that participated in the research about it were so enthusiastic. These ought to be everywhere. Well, they're not needed everywhere, but if you have a street that's exceptionally wide and you have trouble crossing it without veering or it's a skewed intersection or you just personally have a very difficult time veering, you can request a beaconing accessible pedestrian signal, one that has a loud sound that should be the rapid, um, the the once a second locate, like the once a second locator tone. It shouldn't be a a countdown, but at any rate, it, it should be loud enough for you to hear as you are crossing the street out, not very far into the street. You should be able to hear it out in front of you. Head for it. It should get you straight across the street. Audible beacon, APS beacon. Another thing that is is being used in some places 
I think it was maybe first used in San Diego. Sacramento has had a number of them. I know it's one of the things that's being proposed in Montgomery County, Maryland. And there's a lot of research saying that it really works is a tactile guide strip that is next to a crosswalk line. If there's one there, it's, it's not raised very much, quarter of an inch or so is sufficient. You should be able to hear cars going over it. And that gives you sort of a fix on where it is too. There's a, is a line here. I can follow it. I can hear because I hear cars going over. I can hear about where it is. And then you can find it with your cane. It should extend all the way to the curb so you can find it without stepping off the curb. But even if you don't, you should be able to find it when you start crossing. There are challenges with, with that, especially in areas that have snow. It may get torn up and um, jurisdictions may be just unwilling to do that because they haven't found a, a surface that can survive snow plows. In that case, the APS beacon will really work better. In warm climates where they don't have to worry about snow plows, the tactile guide, guide strip can work really well. You just follow it right across the street. It's within the crosswalk, and it'll take you right to the other side within the crosswalk. Well, that's, that's a lot about aligning and maintaining your heading and finding the crosswalk. I want to talk some more about bike lanes. I did talk about them some, but, um, well, there are more and more bike lanes, and bike advocates are a really strong group, and they were finding that where bike lanes were just created in the street, by typically by painting a line, maybe painting some extra stripes out beside them where cars aren't supposed to be. There were just a lot of accidents. They're getting hit. And so there has been a lot of advocacy for what are called separated bike lanes to separate them somehow from cars. The most common ones are in the street, they're against the curb, and then on the other side of the bike lane, there will be a narrow median or maybe an island for a bus stop. So, you know, they're, they're intended to separate pedestrians from vehicles. Their bikes from, from vehicles, but protecting pedestrians seems to be an afterthought. At street level, when they're street level, like I said, there should be a narrow median separating the bikes from the road. But when you have to cross the street, you first cross the bike lane, which is usually one way, but can be two way. And then the median, which should be wide enough to wait on. There may be raised crosswalks across that bike lane. So you don't go up and down ramps. Well, how are you going to find where you're supposed to cross? It should have a detectable warning on both ends of it. It should be a marked crosswalk crossing the bike lane with a detectable warning on each end of it. So you find that detectable warning. There may or may not be a ramp. And that's where you should cross the bike lane. And that the reason that, that there are you know, definite places to cross the bike lane is that there are often other visual cues that are given to cyclists to indicate that there are pedestrians here. They have the right of way yield not that they always will and that's that's the concern you can't hear them you can't hear the bikes coming and they may or may not yield for you one of the things that is sometimes done to encourage yielding is to raise that crosswalk which also makes it easier for a person in a wheelchair to cross and it also could be a little help with direction for you because you're staying on top of of this kind of tabled surface that slopes down on both sides. It's as wide as the whole crosswalk. And it is some disruption to bicyclists. And so they are more likely to yield if there's a raised crosswalk. So you can be thankful if there is one, be a little harder to find, but look for that detectable warning. Jurisdictions are pretty good now at making sure they've got detectable warnings on both ends of that crosswalk across bike lanes. When they're at sidewalk level, I mentioned that more and more jurisdictions are thinking it's a good idea to put bikes and pedestrians both up on sidewalk. There is a recognition that there needs to be something separating the two, especially so vision-disabled pedestrians know the limit of the safe pedestrian way. And it has to be highly detectable. It has to be just definitely recognizable because it has a special meaning. It needs to be crossable by pedestrians with mobility disability, but it's never to be used where pedestrians are intended to cross. So if you come to it, that's not a place to cross. No matter what other cues may tell you, this should be a place to cross. If you come to it, they mean don't cross. There are bikes on the other side and they're not expecting you. So don't cross there. So what is this surface? 
There's only been one surface so far that has been found to be highly detectable and highly recognizable. And that is a raised trapezoid. So to help you envision what that raised trapezoid is, if if you're not real clear on what the shape of a trapezoid is, if you make a triangle, put your two thumbs together, sticking out straight, and then bring your index fingers together to make a triangle, and then imagine cutting off most of that triangle from the top. That's a trapezoid. Now, this trapezoid that can be used as a tactile warning delineator is going to be about 10 inches to a foot wide at the base, going to be six inches or so wide at the top. That means it slopes up very gradually. It's not a tripping hazard. You know, when you come to it, that the cane are underfoot, you can recognize that this is a trapezoid. For Pete's sake, there are bikes on the other side. If I cross over this, I'm in danger. And maybe I don't recognize it till my cane's on the other side. You get your cane back, for heaven's sake. And, you know, if you're traveling with the dog guide before the, the dog knows how you want to treat that, you'll find it underfoot all right and get back on the safe pedestrian side. There be dragons on the other side. Don't cross that trapezoid. So the meaning when you encounter the race trapezoid, it'll be quite unmistakable once you've experienced it. This is a boundary. Don't cross it. The bike's on the other side. As I mentioned before, Sometimes raised bars are used for this purpose instead, and they give the wrong message because you can cross raised bars. You can walk on either side. They don't warn you about any danger. The trapezoid says danger on the other side of this. Don't cross me. Well, more about crossing bike lanes. I mentioned that the crosswalk might be raised and bikes may go up and down to cross it. Look for detectable warnings that should be there on both ends. If there is a signal, use it. Request an APS if there is a signal. The signal should be for crossing the bike lane as well as the street, but it might not be. You need to ask your local engineer how the crossing is timed or somebody who's pretty savvy about traffic signals and their timing. Is it timed so that you can cross the bike lane and then the street, maybe a bike lane on the other side and get to the the far side curb? Or is it only timed from... After you cross the bicycle lane and you're out on Little Island, and only time so you can cross from that island to the island on the other side of the street before you get to the bike lane. So it really is important to know how long that is timed for, to know where you should start crossing from. You want to maximize the likelihood that cyclists are going to yield to you. Well, how do you do that? There's no research that says what's going to make cyclists more likely to yield. I hope I'll be able to conduct some research on that. But we know what makes motorists more likely to yield. It's a combination of things altogether. One is holding your palm up toward the direction of the traffic that's coming toward you. Flag emphatically with your cane. Don't just do a little sweep across. Flag emphatically. Raise it as high as your waist or even your shoulders. Whop, whop, whop. Let them know emphatically, you are crossing there now. You are in their way. They may get spokes in their tires. If they continue, they have to yield. Flag emphatically. And the final one, which has been very powerful for drivers, is taking what's known as a refusable step. You put one foot in the bike lane, but you you keep your weight back on the other foot so you can quickly step back. But that, you know, if you've got your hand up, you flag with that cane, whap, whap. Whap, you got your foot in the street, then you're pretty sure they're going to yield. So combination of those three pretty aggressive indications that you are crossing now, you have the right of way, you are crossing now. So you now know about things that many traffic engineers and planners don't yet know about. You know about using a raised bar tactile direction indicator across the sidewalk to help you find non-corner crosswalks at roundabouts, mid-block crossings, or uh, a floating bus stop that's in the middle of the block. And they can provide a good cue for alignment. Bars always perpendicular to the direction you're going to cross. And you might get some quick kickback when, when you say that, because they may have seen bars that are going in the other direction. There's a very good reason they should be, both from the point of view of people with who use wheeled mobility aids, 
who cross them more easily and for you who to align with, they work. You can align with them accurately. You can't if they go the other way. Never mind how it's done in other countries. The research was not done there. This is a research that's done here that they simply didn't do research. Intuitively, it seems like the bars should go the way you want to go. No, they need to go crosswise for that in order for you to take an accurate direction. And if there's a corner where it's impossible for you to get a good line of travel, so you're crossing in the direction of the, of the crosswalk, they can put down just a two by two square of raised bars at the end of the detectable warning that's farthest away from the center of the intersection and on the side where you want to cross and make sure that those bars are perpendicular to the direction you want to cross. So another, another tool you've got that you can ask for, probably not going to happen if you don't ask for it because you know about this and the engineer may not know it exists, is an APS audible beacon to provide a cue for walking straight across the crosswalk. Listen for that sound out in front of you. Head for it, and you will get there going straight across that crosswalk. It really works. Or especially if you're in a warm area where you're not worried about uh, snow plows, a tactile guide strip close to the crosswalk line that's farthest from the center of the intersection will be something that you can follow. You can find it by listening for cars crossing over it. You can find it by sweeping your cane along the curb line. Your first cue that it exists, unless you know one's been installed there, is listening for what's happening with cars. Why is there tire sound at a particular location in the street? There may be a tactile guide strip. Look for it with your cane and you can follow it and you'll get across within the sidewalk. And then the other thing that you know about is that there should be a trapezoidal directional delineator, a tactile warning delineator to separate pedestrians and bikes at the sidewalk level. If you're in an area where they're doing that and they're raised bars, that's wrong. That does not tell you there are bikes on the other side. It tells you you can safely follow this, maybe on either side. There's no indication of a warning. You need a warning. You need something that that said, and it's not truncated domes because often you cross there. They indicate a crossing. The trapezoid does not indicate a crossing. You never cross that trapezoid. It means there's danger on the other side that you can't hear. And bicyclists who don't expect pedestrians to be there, you need something that says unmistakably, don't cross me. Stop here. Stay on the safe side. So you need to be an advocate. Talk to a friend, family member, O&M specialist that might be able to help you advocate if you need to. The first step, whether you're on your own or you've got somebody helping you, is finding the right person to talk to. This can be challenging. You might have to make a half a dozen calls before you finally find the right engineer, planner, safety person, whoever it is in your jurisdiction that you know has authority over signals if you're trying to get an APS or public rights of way, if it's something like getting a raised direction indicator. It might be transit if you need to have something to help you find the floating bus stop. So it may take some calls. Don't give up yet. Somebody controls that thing and you just have to find them and then know how to advocate. A good first step is to write them a letter. So they've got in paper, create started creating a paper trail saying what it is, where you want it, what your problem is. But then invite them out to see what the problem is, to see what you're trying to deal with, to know where you're trying to cross, what the problem is. And so they really understand what the problem is. And then when you're talking about what you'd like them to do about it, be sure they understand that your trouble crossing the street may impact vehicular traffic, not just you. If you can't cross the street efficiently, you may hold up traffic. and. While there's more and more emphasis in education of traffic engineers and transportation planners on providing for everybody, still the bias is toward, and most engineers who are out there are not trained in the last few years, the bias is going to be toward getting vehicles through that intersection as fast as they can. So make sure they know if you can't get out there and you're in the street, they're they're going to have trouble getting cars through. They're going to have trouble what they see as their main goal is, is to getting vehicles through the intersection. If you can't do it efficiently, then you're going to screw up their system. So it's to their advantage to provide what you need. It's to their advantage. Provide, it helps other pedestrians. It's going to help vehicular traffic. 
as well. So it's time for questions. I hope you've been thinking of some. We are going to alternate. We have a mic runner in the room. Do we have hands up here in the room yet? How are we doing on Zoom? We have about six. So let's start with Zoom then. Dan Newt. Hi. So I have a question about truncated domes and what they're used for. I've seen cases where there's a little piece of walkway, like specifically a bike lane that's in the roadway ends and bikes are directed to go up onto the sidewalk. So there's a little piece of paved sidewalk connecting the roadway to the sidewalk. And there are truncated domes there, even though if you go down that way, you'll feel the truncated domes think you can cross, but there's no crosswalk there, nothing on the other side. Is that correct? That's an area in which there's still a bit of disagreement, Dan. I myself would recommend that instead of truncated domes across that ramp, that there in fact be the tactile direction indicator, the the raised bars. But there is a good bit of precedent already for putting the domes at the top of a bike ramp. My suggestion is that you make sure that the truncated domes really are at the bottom of a ramp. If they're on the bike ramp, they'll be at the top of the ramp. There's nothing that says you can't use them that way. I think okay. it's not the best idea. I think raised bars are better. There's beginning to be some some movement in that direction. But often you've got a bike ramp coming up onto to the, the sidewalk at a roundabout, for instance, and there it may not be built according to the best recommendation for roundabouts. It may not have anything. Right. And just related, is it correct to put them at the edge of a train platform? Because that seems like something where you'd say, no, you can't go past here. Sometimes there there are level crossings of train platforms. No, I mean on a platform where if you keep going, you'll be on the tracks where the train goes. Well, there are some uh, train lines that that are right at street level, and there is a pedestrian crossing across them. And so there, there should be a detectable warning to let you know that there's a pedestrian crossing there. Now, obviously, that's not going to be high-speed trains going through all the time, but there are places where pedestrians are intended to cross and if you've got to get to the other side you look for the detectable warning because that's where this is michael byington my question is this two lane roundabouts where you've got traffic coming at the roundabout coming both on it and off it in four legs usually at each crossing as you said traffic's always going to be coming from one way when you make your crossing so in the middle of that channel, there's usually a protected area flanked by two detectable warning strips showing you where the line of demarcation is on each side of the protected channeling between the, the two directions. Now, the trouble is, from my viewpoint, there is almost never 10 feet. I think in some situations, seven and some situations, 10 is required in the regs. And so if you are going to require signals at the two-lane roundabouts, what type of signaling should we be recommending, which is not going to simply create a conflagration of confusion because you've got so many signals so close together? It depends a little bit on the width of the roundabout, but normally you're going to signalize each direction of travel separately. So for instance, you, you've got traffic coming from, from your left. That would be traffic that's coming out of the roundabout. And you want to cross all the way across, but you know, there's an island out in the middle. And so, you know, you, you, have, you have a signal that controls just the traffic for coming out of the roundabout when you are ready to cross now. So you go out to the island, cross the island, and then it should be separately signaled, hopefully with a push button, hopefully with an APS that separately stops the traffic that's going into the roundabout, traffic coming from your right, so you can complete your crossing. It would only be a very small roundabout, and you know, normally if you've got two lane or more roundabouts, they're pretty wide, and so they're going to signalize the, the two parts of that crossing separately. That just makes sense in terms of the of the traffic flow. You know, if, you, if you're crossing to get it out to the island and traffic has to wait for you, if it's signalized for you to go all the way across, they got to wait for you to cross the island and cross the other part of the, the access road. So normally they'll be signalized separately. 
Jenna Cox. Great job with the presentation. My question is, when you're doing street crossing, would you use the tap technique or the constant contact technique? Well, it certainly is an individual choice and depends somewhat on the kind of cane tip that you have, what your choice is going to be too. But okay, if, if you're trying to follow any kind of a guide, and some people will, will be able to and will follow just the, the painted pavement marking. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. enough that you can detect it. You'll, you'll find it much better if you're using constant contact. Right. We have hands in the room. Ray Campbell. BZ, um, great presentation as always. This is not about street crossings, but um, I wanted to ask you, a number of cities now are allowing these scooters on the sidewalks where um, people can rent them and they can go and drop them wherever. Would you would you have any recommendations as to, other than don't, would you have recommendations as to how we can work with the the uh, city you know planners and stuff to try to make it as safe as possible for us and th- these things to coexist yeah huge problem and i think the the best recommendation certainly from the point of view of the visually impaired traveler is that that they should be in the bike lane they should never be on the sidewalk and some jurisdictions are going that way not all yet it certainly is a, a sort of shifting scene, but, you know, jurisdictions are working with providers of this equipment to say, no, you can't just drop them wherever you want to. So they're right across the sidewalk for Pete's sake. They're doing that and, you know, trying to come up with solutions. Everybody recognizes that's a problem and it's a horrible problem if you can't see. And I I think your advocacy should be for them to be in the bicycle lane. And they're not not just scooters. They're all kinds of what are generically called micro-mobility devices. Sometimes they're they're like a skateboard that's motorized. Uh, Those little hoverboard things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they're they're things that may have a a single wheel that's, I don't know, maybe 12 inches or so in diameter, fat wheel with with a place for your feet on each side of it that's motorized. I'd be scared to death to try to get on one, but <laughs> yeah, they're out there, you know? They are. And um, so, yeah, micro-mobility devices, that's a good term to know because you're not just talking about scooters. You're you're talking about micro-mobility devices, all of these kinds of things and ones we haven't seen yet that are small and powered. I think you want to advocate for them to be in the bike lane. And, and, and advocate, if, you, if your jurisdiction isn't doing it, advocate that, that there are fixed parking places for them. Yeah, that's a big issue, too. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the Zoom room. Charlene Ornelas. I am from San Diego. And what we're now using in San Diego for the uh, guide strips in the, in the crosswalks are three to four, preferably four layers of thermoplast, which is what they use to mark the white lines. And that should not be torn up by snowplows. My question is, some audible signals require you to hold the push button for a few seconds in order to get the audible part. Um, That way it isn't so obnoxious to the people in the community. Is there any way to indicate that I need to hold the button a little extra in order to trigger the, the audible? I advocate for blind people to always hold that button at least a second. A second's not very long. And the way that was determined to be the amount of time was research was done to find out how long people hold buttons. People almost never hold it a single second. People hold it like a, um, a second's not much trouble for you to hold it a second. You're going to get whatever that signal's got to offer. All right. Um, I think we have one more question here in the audience. Yeah, Yeah, this is Sarah Presley from the Access Board. And quickly, I wanted to point out to the one man that was talking about the truncated domes, that truncated domes are just to let us know that we're moving from a pedestrian to a vehicular way. They are not exclusively for determining whether we can cross or not, although they have become quite helpful in that respect. And then just a quick question to BZ. So, I don't know enough about this stuff yet about the trapezoids and the bars. I would really like to find somewhere where this has been implemented and go and check it out. But has the research shown that a cane user can really tell the difference between a trapezoid and a truncated dome? And I mean, a bar obviously is different, Um, but 
it's something as, as low as a quarter inch in height from the ground? I mean, do we, can we tell quickly enough to know that it's supposed to be give, giving us different, the different information that it's supposed to be giving us? The trapezoid is actually three quarters of an inch high, somewhat higher than, than the domes or the bars. And for, for all of them, underfoot is the best way to know which one you're come to. You may or may, or may not be sure of it by cane. Once you get used to it, you'll probably know. If you know the environment that you're in, you know you got a bike lane on the sidewalk level, you know there's this half trapezoid out there, you know what it's going to feel like. You know, you probably do catch it with your cane without any, without any problem. You know, you're probably used to finding the domes at uh, the bottom of, of curb ramps or at a platform edge. And so that's what you're expecting to, to find. So, but it often will take stepping on it to be sure what it is, especially if you're in an unfamiliar place. So I just want to take this opportunity first to thank Beezy for taking the time on 4th of July um, to speak with us and give us some incredible information. And you'll you'll be pleased to know that Beezy is part of our Transportation and Pedestrian Environmental Access Committee and and gives us information and we request information and she's an unofficial part of, of that. And we are so thrilled to have her talent and her uh, research ability to help us out. So thank you, you so much. You too. <laughs> um, thank you all so much for being here.